Father. God, we come to you, we say that you're worthy. Uh, believe that you are worthy of all praise, you're worthy of all glory, you're worthy of all honor. God, we just say that you're worthy. And even the moments that we don't feel like it or the moments that we're distracted or the moments that we're exhausted, God, it's good for us to look to you. You're, you're bigger than we are, you're greater, you're kind and you're merciful. And God, I pray that as we feel overwhelmed with life or we feel encouraged with the things that are happening or wherever we're at, God, as we turn our eyes to you, I pray that our hearts would beat fast for the fact that you are gracious and merciful and you are worthy. I pray for this time as we continue to worship, as we look at your word. God, I ask you to help all of us to listen and hear what you would say to us. God, I pray you would help me to teach and that I'd be faithful to your word. God, I'm praying that you would fill me with your spirit and enable me to teach clearly and accurately your word. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, I'm glad you're here in the rain. Go team, go. Totally proud of y'all. I don't know if it was raining when everyone was walking in the door, but I, uh, I did a lot of raking with my son yesterday, and for the first time ever, I decided to use those paper yard bags. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? So this morning when I woke up and it started raining, I was really ticked off because I have no idea if I'm about to come, ho come home tonight and it's just going to be a huge pile because I had a lot of raking to do. There were 27 bags of leaves yesterday, so... Um, the, the rain is stressing me out a little bit. I'm going to be honest. Over something stupid like leaves. I just, that's a little, that has nothing to do with our sermon. I did not plan on sharing that. I have no idea why I'm talking to you about that. It was the rain that got me going on it. Anyways, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be jumping into the book of Titus. Uh, we started this series a couple weeks ago, and we're going to keep digging in. And, and here's one of the reasons why we're in the book of Titus. When Jesus left the earth, um, he left something here. He left the spirit, but he also left the church. Like his idea after he died and came back from the dead, the thing that he wanted to leave on the earth to represent himself was the church. And, and listen, I, I got to be honest. I think his idea, the way that it's his, the way he had it planned and laid out, I think his idea is fantastic and it's amazing and it's wise the church is supposed to be this unbelievable demonstration of the good news of Jesus at work. It's supposed to be a demonstration that we can be together in deep and loving relationship despite all of our differences. That it's supposed to trump all the differences we have and unite us together from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, even different opinions on things. Like It's supposed to bring us together because of the gospel where we should live in deep relationship and in harmony with one another because of the work of Jesus. It's supposed to be this unbelievable demonstration of people who are in process of being redeemed by Jesus. It's not a, a group of perfect people. It's a group of broken people who are joined together with all of our flaws and Jesus is patiently working on us and we are patiently loving one another. It's supposed to be an awesome picture of the gospel. It, it's supposed to be a powerful representation to the city around us, that we care about needs and we actually put love into action for the good of the city around us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he would leave heaven and come down to serve us, if he would die on a cross 
to invite us into his family, then the church should be a living representation to all the darkest places in Tallahassee, the places where the sin is the worst, the places where the oppression is the highest, the places where the brokenness runs deep, the places where the sin is hidden and everything looks good and polished on the outside. The church of Jesus Christ should be running to those places and representing him well. His, his plan is awesome. But here's the problem. Uh, I can't say that I've always experienced church like that. Have you? Okay, we're not going to answer today. Okay, uh, um, that's probably a really bad question. I'm setting you up every time. For some reason, I want you to talk to me, but I should give up on that apparently. Uh, Listen, here's the reality. It's not just that I've rarely seen the church in powerful form. I feel like on a regular basis, I've experienced the church in a very broken form and not broken because there's messy people in it. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, Like that's the type of messiness you want in the church. You want messiness in the church who people are working on their relationship with God wherever they're at in life. I'm talking about the brokenness that feels like the church is quite frankly, a waste of time. That it's fake, shallow, no impact on life, no impact on the city, no way to get into meaningful relationships with one another. Like it just seems useless. And those would be the moments I would hope would be the worst, but those aren't the worst moments of the church. It's like I've experienced church that hasn't just been useless, it's been oppressive it's been harsh. It's been a tool to cause division. It's been a tool to huddle up together and get real angry about the way everything is around us and not care about demonstrating the love of Jesus. If I'm honest, I've experienced the church in really, really bad ways. Just out of curiosity, how many would you, of you would be brave enough to say in a church that you've experienced the church in bad ways? Yeah. Painful, disappointing. And then what's even more difficult is sometimes we experience the church in bad ways and we sit and we look at our kids experiencing the church in bad ways and we have to ask ourselves these questions. This isn't just impacting me and giving me a rough couple weeks. What is it doing to my kids? What is it doing for the cause of Jesus in the city? Listen up. I gotta be honest, the reason that the church stumbles is not because the plan of Jesus was flawed. The reason that the church stumbles is because we don't follow the plan of Jesus. We we get distracted, we get disobedient, we get tired. Listen, that's why I'm excited about the book of Titus because in the book of Titus, Paul is writing this letter to this young guy that he's left in this island called Crete, this luxury beach island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And he says, Titus, I got work for you to do. And he gives instructions about how Titus is supposed to set up these churches so they would follow the plan of God. And as we look at this, I I want us to go through it and I want us to be challenged to get in line with the plan of God for this church. It's not gonna go over everything, but it's gonna go over enough things that's gonna give us work to do, right? So let me remind you what his job was. Titus chapter one, verse five. If if you've got your Bibles open, that's great. If you don't, you can put it on your phone and scroll to Titus one, verse five. Here's why Paul says he left Titus. He says this, 
This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Like, Titus, here's the deal. I was there. We went through all these villages, planted all these churches, and your job is to go back, get things lined up, and set up the leadership. Priority number uno is set the leadership up. That's what you've got to do. Get it, get it squared away. Now, that doesn't sound too bad. Go in. Who's the leader? Who's got skills? Put them in charge, right? But, but look at this. I want you to see how Titus or how Paul describes the people in Crete. If you just scroll down to verse 12, Listen, you need quick warning. Paul's not nice here, okay? Here's what he says. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of her own. Listen, you're here, you're supposed to set up this leadership. And let me tell you what one of the, how one of the, the Cretans described themselves. He said this, Cretans, that's people who live in Crete, okay? In case you don't know that, that's the island of Crete, Cretans. Cretans are always liars, Oh, wow. Okay, this is getting good. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Okay, so then listen, these aren't Paul's words. He said, listen, let me tell you how the Cretans among themselves describe themselves. They always lie. They are evil. They're lazy and they're fat. They eat too much. Okay, maybe fat is too harsh. They just, they're evil. They're just gluttons. They're just completely no restraint. Man, you would hope Paul would say that. That's not how I've experienced Cretans. But look at what he says in the very next verse, verse 13. This testimony (laughs) is true. Oh, man. Okay. Now let's think about Titus' job here. Hey, Titus, here's your job. This church has been in existence for six to eight weeks, bro. You got to walk in and let me tell you, you got to set up the elders. You got to get a group of men who are going to be godly men to lead it. And let me tell you what you have to work with. You got evil beasts, they always lie, and they're gluttons. See you in a couple weeks. Good luck with that, Titus. Good luck with all your hopes and dreams. Should be a piece of cake, right? Imagine that. Just, just imagine that we decided to do a short-term mission trip to, I don't know what place you would feel like would be the most God-forsaken country in the world. Um, you know what? I got one. How about Afghanistan? We decide that we're going to Afghanistan for a couple weeks next summer, and you are crazy enough to sign up and go with me to Afghanistan. We go to these villages in all insanity. We go village to village to village and we start sharing the gospel and no one's killed us. The Taliban hasn't cut our heads off. And this is crazy. People are getting saved. And so they get saved and we say, well, I got to go to the next village. So we load up on whatever donkey we're driving or car and we move to the next village and we share the gospel and someone gets saved. And then I talk to some of you on the trip and I say, listen, I'm going to leave you here for two more weeks. I need you to go back to all the villages and get those churches set up in Afghanistan. Now, some of you are like, I ain't ever going on a mission trip with that dude, ever, 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 because he talks about leaving me there. (laughs) Like, this is terrifying. This is what Paul has done. And as I send you an email on the plane out of Afghanistan, I say, now listen, Afghans, listen, bro, they're violent. They're angry. They'll kill you. They're oppressive towards women. 
That's the rumor on the street, and it's true. Don't forget to get good pastors. See you in a couple weeks. (laughs) How many of you are loving that assignment? Like, they've been saved for like two weeks, bro, and you want me to go to these dudes that might have been terrorists, they're former Muslims, they're radical, they're scared that they might get killed, and you want me to find pastors that have been there for like two weeks? That's the job of Titus. Listen, I need you to feel the weight of this task that Paul has given to Titus. Uh, like, and as you do that, as I think about that, that Paul is supposed to set up leadership, the immediate thing that pops into my head is what areas of compromise are we willing to give up on these leaders? Because there is no way in the world that some dude is a follower of Jesus for two weeks in radical Islam and he's ready to pastor a church. Would y'all agree? Okay, some of you would. Others of you are like, man, I guess Jesus can do anything and I'm really proud of your faith. That's what you're believing. That's awesome. I'm, I'm looking at it saying, okay, so what, what, what are the things that I would immediately say they don't need to have? Well, what are the things that I can compromise on? Because if we set that bar too high, they ain't getting no pastors. Listen, uh, we're gonna see Paul's list for Titus as he's in this island trying to set up this leadership. And as we read this list, I want to note a few things that are missing. I'll tell you a few things that are miss- missing. There's not a single mention of leadership skills. Not one. Not a single mention of business wisdom. Not a single mention of people skills. He got to know how to work a room. There's only one skill that's actually mentioned, able to teach. Almost every single one of them are character. Almost every single one of the characteristics that Paul laid out is about godly character. No education, no seminary, no background in Judaism, no knowledge of the scriptures required. Doesn't say that. This is is shocking. When we read this list, I want it to be shocking. Here's the other thing that stands out. When we read this list, I want you to ask this question. Which of these standards are not actually expected of every single follower of Jesus? Uh, listen, I'm not saying the list isn't intimidating. Like, it's intimidating to stand up here and preach this list. I just got to be honest. Personally, I'd rather someone else preach this list instead of me preach about qualifications that I'm supposed to have. But we're going to look at it anyways, and as we read it, I want you to notice I want you to notice what's missing in that list, what highlight, what's highlighted in that list, and I want you to ask yourself this question. What's different on this list than what's expected for every single person sitting in the pew that's a follower of Jesus? You'd be shocked when you sit there and say, well, I guess everyone's supposed to be that way. This list might not be that complicated. It's shocking it doesn't say, listen, they don't just need to be godly. They need to be like crazy awesome godly. They don't need just to be a good husband, a good father. They got to be the most excellent husband and father. That's not what he does. Listen, this list, I'm not going to say it's low because it's not low. 
it just doesn't match up what I think our list normally are when we think of how a pastor should be qualified. The, the areas that Paul compromises aren't the same areas that we're willing to compromise in. Let me read the list. Titus chapter 1, verse 6 says this. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Listen, Paul's list. There's one other spot that you find the qualifications for pastors, elders, overseers. First Timothy chapter three. I'm not gonna go over that. You can write that down on your own. But in both of those lists, there's one word that stands out that's highlighted that I believe is kind of the linchpin characteristic that Paul's looking for and all the others underneath it describe what that characteristic is. It's this phrase, above reproach. You see it in there? He says it twice. He says it in verse six, if anyone is above reproach, then he says it again in verse seven, for an overseer's God's steward must be above reproach. That word in the Greek means blameless. In other words, it's the idea that this person can, cannot actually be accused of doing anything wrong. It's an, and it's not because they can't be accused of wrong because they're like a really good politician that knows how to spin things. It's not that they can't be accused of anything wrong because they know how to portray themselves and hide the things that are broken. That's not what he means. He's talking about their real day-to-day, in-the-heart type of life that is filled with godly character. The, the idea is this. It, it's that this is a guy that if someone did bring up an accusation, you'd say, there's no way that's true because I've seen how that guy lives. He's, he's, there is, he's blameless, man. Like, it, that's not going to stick because he doesn't live like that. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. The way that this person lives is high character. And here's what I want to remind you. Remember who Titus is dealing with and the compromise that Paul will not let Titus have is that he will not let him compromise on them having godly, blameless character. There is no room for compromise in pastoral leadership when it comes to godly character. They must have godly character. It is a non-negotiable. Why would I go over that on a Sunday morning? Uh, because listen, I, I don't know if you'll always be at this church. I, I don't know. I don't know what churches you will attend, but you need to hear this, that when you go to visit a church and you're checking it out, if you move or whatever happens, if your kids go off to college and you're helping them find a church to engage in, the most important thing is that they teach the word and that the leadership have godly character. Listen, church, we, we can't compromise on this. One of the reasons that I believe that the church in the United States is in crisis is because we've had too many compromises on the character of pastors. 
Listen, you may not have seen the inner workings of this. I have. And it's infuriating. Uh, Listen, I will never forget the most moments where I felt the most deluded about ministry. I was a young pastor just learning things and we were in an interim at this church. So I was one of the associate guys. No one, I was the guy that you could yell at and get away with it. That was my job on staff. You want to yell at someone, you go yell at Fias because he's 26 years old. No one respects him. No one cares if you yell at him because he's a young guy. Get it off your chest and move on. Don't do it to the big dogs. Do it to the youth pastor. That was, don't do that here, by the way. Sorry, Logan. That was not a free thing for people to yell at you. Um, but, but that's what was going on, man. I was getting yelled at for stuff. And they would bring in these guest dudes. Oh, my goodness. And to sit in there in the background as these guys are talking about their game plan for smoozing the people when they walk out. It's like, I need a coffee cup. I'll never forget it. I need a coffee cup. Yes, sir. Uh, what kind of coffee do you want? No, no, no. I don't really. Let me just put a little. I don't really care if I have coffee in it. The point is I will put the people at ease with the coffee. Isn't it going to be great? I'm going to put them at ease with the coffee. And then I've got this story. Listen, young man, this story always gets them. Listen, I, I, mean, I get it. I was probably a cocky 26-year-old. But there was something in me that was like, if that's what ministry is, I don't ever want to be a part of it. I got to play the games and figure out how to work the room with props. I'm not saying it's not a good, you can have a good illustration, but the prop was to make you think I was approachable because I held a coffee cup. Instead of just being approachable, man, you, do, do you see the difference? It's like a fake plasticky trash that we put up with in pastoral ministry. And it's not okay. The church is supposed to be led by men of God who are the real deal. Not spin artists who are good leaders and good politicians. Listen, seminary degrees do not equal godly character. You can smack as many degrees on a dude as you want. And if his heart hasn't been changed and he's not burning for Jesus, he's not qualified to be a pastor. And that dude can have an eighth grade education. And his heart burns for Jesus and he's the real deal. And he's more qualified than a dude that has six PhDs in Bible. And yet somehow... When we pick pastors, if they don't have the degree, they're out. I'm not saying there's not value in degrees. I I have degrees. I have education. Like I, I do. But it doesn't qualify me. It may have educated me, but that's not the same as being qualified. Experience does not equal godly character. Listen, I'm not saying experience isn't bad. I'm not saying, no, you can't have experience, you can't have, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it doesn't equal godly character. Not even good experience where they went to a church and they saw it grow from 50 to 5,020 or whatever that was, right? In two years, we saw it explode and yeah, yeah, right? Like, that's great if God blows the thing up, man, that's phenomenal, praise him for it. But that doesn't mean that you have godly character. Listen, church, we, We can't compromise on this. And it's also not a one-time evaluation. 
You don't just have a one-time evaluation and say, okay, he's got good godly character. Check for the rest of his life. Listen, it's not a one-time evaluation. It's an ongoing thing that at any moment, at any moment, if a pastor slips out of godliness and character, they're not qualified. I'm not, I'm not talking about like a bad moment where they get angry and send you a mean email or yell at you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about they slipped out of living in a sodly, solid, godly character. They're unrepentant. They're not humble. They don't match up on this list, not just for like five minutes, but for weeks and months. Listen, it's not okay. We don't get to compromise on it. And I also need to say this. Godly character is not equal to perfection. Do y'all understand that? The, the point is not that the pastor has to be perfect. And when this guy is perfect, then he's qualified. But any flaws that he has, that, that's not the point of this thing. The, the point is godly character. It's demonstrating an ongoing and real work of Jesus in the heart and life of this person. It's a person whose life is worth imitating. Now listen, I, I gotta be honest. I'm gonna wade into some of these things because I think Paul flushes out what this looks like. And I mentioned it briefly that part of this is a little intimidating to stand up here and preach. But, but you need to hear it. And I need to say it out loud without softening the blow of the standard that God has. I, we can't. We, God has a standard for what the pastor is supposed to be like. With all the elders, they're supposed to have a certain type of character. And so I pray that as we're going through this, that you would, um, you would pray for me as that I would accurately deliver this to you without fear. Because gotta be honest, this first part makes me nervous. All right? Um, the very first place that Paul tells Titus to start looking, he says, I want them to be above approach and have godly character. And here's the first place you look, Titus, is the man's family. Out of the gate, it's family. He says, you look at the marriage, you look at the parenting. Whew. Listen, let me, let, me, let me explain why that's nerve-wracking. I want you to imagine on your job description and your job expectation is a regular evaluation of your marriage and your parenting. Anyone else sweating a little? Are you, yeah, good. I see, I see those hands. Yes, that would make you nervous. If the, you got called into your boss's office, like, okay, we gotta, we gotta evaluate your marriage and see if she's still qualified to do this job. Oh, man, literally, I'm, maybe you're not sweating. I'm sweating, and that's probably because this is mainly about me and my marriage. Um, anyways, hopping in. Y'all didn't laugh at that one. Thought you would. <laughs> Moving on. Let's look at the first thing that he says here. He makes this statement. He says this, verse six, if anyone is above reproach, he says this, the husband of one wife. Crazy phrase there. Um, I mean, it's not really that crazy of a phrase, but here's the standard. He's the husband of one wife. Um, <laughs> so what does that mean? That should be the question that we're asking. There's a lot of different views of what it means to be the husband of one wife. Uh, some people think he's talking about there's no polygamy. Hey, listen, he can't be married to like three people at once or two. Okay, maybe three was the wrong number to start with there. Like the dude can only be married to one woman at a time. He can't have 
two, three, four, or anything else. First of all, that's called stupid. I just got to be honest. That's just straight dumb. All right. The second thing is he's just saying it can't be this way. Um, I think that's a good standard to have for pastors, in case you were wondering. I don't think that's primarily Paul's thought. I don't think Paul's saying, bro, just find a guy that's only married to one woman right now. Like, I don't believe that's the point of what he's saying. Uh, The other option is some people believe that he can only have one in his entire lifetime. He can be married once, and if that all goes bye-bye, he can never remarry again. So if his wife dies, he can't be remarried. I got to be honest, I... I don't think that's what Paul's saying. It doesn't make sense with other things he talks about with widows and remarriage and things like that. Um, it doesn't line up. It would seem crazy to me that Paul would tell people, if your wife dies, you need to get remarried. Oh, but by the way, once you do that, you can't be a pastor. Like, I know you obeyed the word, but you didn't. Sorry. Like, that, that doesn't work. That, I, that, I don't buy it. And these are real theories that people really believe and push. All right, I'm not just making them up. Like, what's the most crazy idea I can come up with? And these are real things that people believe. The other idea that some people say is that they think it means a man can have never been divorced. Now, this one gets a little tricky for me. Um, As I read, I don't have a full time to do a study of what the Bible says about divorce and divorce and remarriage. And there's a whole lot of variety about this. But it, it does raise this one question for me. Why didn't Paul say it in this way? Like, there's a word for saying not divorced, right? Just like he says later on, not arrogant. He could have said not arrogant, not divorced. Why didn't he say not divorced, which is a common way of saying it? Why did he say husband of one wife? Well, listen, here's what that word, that phrase in Greek actually means this. It's better translated that he is a one-woman man. This, This is a guy who's characterized by this, that the character of his life is revealed in his marriage that he is a fully committed husband. He's not a guy that cheats on his wife. He doesn't flirt with other women. He's like, he's solid, he's locked in, he's committed, he's not bailing on the marriage. This guy is the real deal. His character right now in this moment is that he is a one-woman type of man. In other words, this, he's a good husband, He's a good, faithful, committed, dedicated husband. I believe that's the thing that's here. And here's what I believe it's saying. This is not an expectation on his wife. I I need y'all to hear that. My wife is in kids ministry right now. She doesn't know I'm saying this. This is not an expectation for his wife. This is about him, his character, his leadership and the way he treats and values and honors and leads and cares for his wife. This is about godly character that is primarily fleshed out in the home. um, I I think that's important. Uh, It's important for me because I I feel this protection personally that I would want for my wife. Y'all have been great to my wife. I'm not, listen, I'm not picking a fight with y'all at all. Y'all have been super kind. I mean, you've been so gracious to my wife. That's not here. But uh, not everyone is that gracious to pastor's wives. Y'all know that, right? Like, like, what do you mean the pastor's wife wears jeans? <laughs> She's a pastor's wife. 
like, what do you mean she goes to the park with the kids and her hair's not perfectly done up? It's in a ponytail and she's in shorts and a t-shirt chasing, like, how does she not have, she should be in like a, the perfect dress outfit, always prim and proper, even at the park with her kids. Like, listen, and I'm not, y'all been in church, you know that exists, right? Okay, good. I, I don't want the looks like you're crazy. No one does that. Listen, people do that. It is, it is insane. What do you mean she can't teach a women's Bible study? Like, what do you mean she's not gifted at being, it, there's no qualifications for her to be a gifted communicator. The qualification is about the man leading his wife well. It's not the man portraying an image of leading his wife well. It's a real man that really leads and cares for his wife. Doesn't mean they don't have fights. Doesn't mean they don't have disagreements. It doesn't mean they don't have issues. Doesn't mean they don't have rough patches. It means that that man is leading through those, that he's responding with godliness, that there's no unfaithfulness sneaking in there. That that's what I believe is being said by Paul with a one woman man. I think it's that question. How is he interacting with his wife? How is he leading her? How is he caring for her? Is he faithful? Is he morally pure when it comes to relating with his wife? Now, even though I think that's the main focus there is on the current state of the man's marriage, I do believe it also includes the past state of his marriage. It doesn't mean that his past is off limits for discussion. You gotta look at that, man. You can't ignore that. And, and here's what I would say, because I'm about to wade into the question of divorce and I'm probably, I'm still in process on what I think Paul is saying here. But here's the question. Um, is a man disqualified if he's ever been divorced? Are any of y'all wondering that? Okay, good. Listen, your hands help me. Um, you, I know we're Baptists. You're not really allowed to, you can just do this, I guess. Is that allowed? No, I'm just kidding. Um, you can nod. You can say yes. You can go, I don't care. It do, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I'm going to talk about it anyways, even if you shake your head no. It just helps me know that I'm not off track. Um, the question, is a man disqualified if he's been divorced? And what about a divorce that happens before salvation? Like, I mean, what happens if a dude gets divorced, and then five years later, he gets saved. Is that dude disqualified? Does the gospel not cover that? Listen, these are, these are questions that um, go on in my head. And let me just say this. Just because a man has only been married to one woman does not mean that he's qualified. Like, you can stay married and be a lousy husband, and that woman just endures it. That isn't, that's not a badge of honor, <laughs> All right, like that, that's not it. So let me, let me answer what I think is going here. I, I do go back and forth on this. He, here's what I believe is the answer. If a man has been divorced, I believe that should cause pause and requires much further investigation. I get why some people would say it's just easier to say, no, let's not deal with it. But, but here's the deal. I, I remember asking this, I remember getting this conversation with seminary professors. I remember we asked it in class all the time. What if he was divorced before he got saved? And every single time my professors said, that's a great theoretical question, but in real life ministry, that will never happen. <laughs> Bro, let, let me explain how I view that now. As a, 
as a 22-year-old, I was like, oh, wow, I guess I'm just, my head is stuck in the clouds. I'm in theory, and they have pastoral ministry experience, and I'm just an idiot. Here's what that tells me. You've only been at a church that the only people who ever got saved got saved when they were five. You have not been at a place where you were at a church where adults were meeting Jesus. That's why it's never happened in your church. Listen, I, I, I got this struggle for me. Paul, and here's why I'm answering why I'm answering. Paul can murder, blaspheme, persecute the church, meet Jesus, and be qualified to be an apostle of the church. But a dude can get a divorce, meet Jesus, and now that gospel doesn't, it covers murder, it just doesn't cover divorce. No, I, I don't know, guys, that feels like a pretty weak application of the gospel. It feels like the gospel may forgive me of divorce, but I will always be tainted by it. And I'm not saying sin doesn't have consequences. I'm just saying, man, it's crazy to me that I can meet Jesus and then not be valued with esteem and be qualified to be a pastor of a church. That, it, that's my question for it. That's my initial answer. The, the other question, what if the divorce happened a long time ago? Like I asked this question, picture this. A dude gets saved 12, 13, or five. Okay, whenever a dude gets saved. Goes off to college, meets a girl at age 19, and they fall madly in love and get married. Divorced at 23. Right? Does that feel like a real life scenario? All right. Goes through all of life finds out all the brokenness that both of them contributed to the divorce. Got divorced at, at 21 or whatever, 20, say 20, 21. And now he goes on with life. He grows in the Lord. He grows in maturity. He meets a woman. He gets married. And then at 31, at 41, at 51, that dude gets more and more in love with Jesus. And at this present moment, 30 years later, he's living, he has been and he is living like a one-woman man. Does that divorce at 21 disqualify him? I get why we would have questions. But I'm beginning to think that, man, it's not just that pre-salvation Jesus cleans us. Isn't he still working on us? Like, church, I... I don't want to lower this standard. I, as I've been looking at this, especially heavily again for the last two weeks prepping for this sermon, I'm looking at it and saying, divorce should give us pause. It requires a, like, if a dude got divorced like three years ago and nothing's changed in his life, listen, man, no, like, you got divorced three years ago. That's pretty quick, man. I'm not ready to jump, dump you into the position of elder or deacon. That's, that's too soon. But I think we need to reconsider this. I think when I look at that, I think the question is current character and the last several years. Like, has his life been characterized as a one-woman man? I think this is what's happening with Paul and Titus here. Like, think about this. These people have been in pagan idolatry. Like, they can be considered a spiritual man and visit prostitutes at the temple for weeks and weeks and weeks on a regular basis. Paul shows up here and says, I need you to be a one-woman type of man. He's saying, that's gone out of that dude's life. He's committed to this woman. He's solid. It's a guy that when people look at him, he's saying, that's a good, solid, committed, godly husband. 
Listen, there's a certain way that divorce can happen that I think causes ramifications. I, I think there's certain messiness that we might not be able to get past, that we'd put you up there and it would feel like a scam. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a person that if they got divorced, there's been full repentance and the serious work of Jesus on them and they're not the same man they were 20 years ago when it happened. I don't want to be stuck in the sins that, that I did 20 years ago. Man, if the gospel doesn't change that, I, I don't know. And this is about the gospel being at work, not just time, the gospel at work. Listen, some of you may have questions about this. So do I, okay? And I want you to know I'm more than willing to have whatever conversations around the Bible that you want. I will sit down. I would love to. Like, that may sound like an awful conversation to you. You can send an email if that's the case, and we'll, I can email you back and forth. But if, if you want to sit down and talk about this, I'll spend as much time with you in the Bible wrestling with this as you want to spend. Like, I'm great with that. That would be phenomenal. Um, and listen, I agree that what I just shared with, it's, it's been difficult. I want to remind you, his main concern is not his marital status. His main concern is his character fleshed out in marriage. That's the concern that Paul is saying here. And we can disagree about the divorce thing, um, but I don't think we can disagree that this is mainly about the man's character, not his marital status. Okay? I hope, I hope that was clear. I hope that was quest, helpful. The question is, is he a godly, faithful husband? Uh, and again, it's not about facades and avoiding the big sins and appearance. I, the fear that I would have is that a young guy that's a pastor would hear this and read this, and he would say, okay, I, I have to control my wife in a way that everyone thinks that I have a good marriage. Do you see the temptation for that in that passage? Like, th that's not the point. The point is not the appearance of a good marriage. The point is the character of a good marriage. Um, yeah, here's the second thing he says. And this one makes me even more nervous than the first one. <laughs> All right, it's not just that he's the husband of one wife. Look at this in verse six. And his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, now listen, right off the bat, I, this is about his characteristic as a father. And um, I, I'm looking at this and I'm gonna say the same exact thing. This is not a standard for my kids. And I'm going to explain why I'm saying that in a while. This is a standard for my parenting. Uh, all right? So the, the conversation, y'all haven't done this to my kids, uh, is not my three-year-old acts like a three-year-old, and the conversation is, listen, three-year-olds are okay, but pastor's kids that are three-year-olds, you, you ought not to behave like that. that that's, uh, he probably shouldn't. He's three. Like, three-nagers are the worst. Um, but what I'm saying, this is not a standard for the kid and saying that's on the kids. The kids have to live up to that standard. This is about his parenting. All right, I'm going to show you that in a minute, but let me explain what a few words there mean. First of all, the first word, debauchery, that's not a, nor a normal word that I use in day-to-day -day living. I don't know, maybe you do. Maybe your vocabulary is gigantic, and you're always saying it's debauchery, and it's probably something you got from, I don't know, watching the news. I don't know, but let me tell you what this word means in the Greek. Uh, it means someone who's acting senseless without regard. The idea is they're just living wild. It's wild living. This would be just 
reckless partying with no concern for consequences. The other word, insubordination, I think you know what that means. Uh, It's someone who's rebellious and uncontrollable. They're not going to submit to any authority whatsoever. The idea is this, that these kids are wild and rebellious. And the, the question is not the character of the kids. The question is the character of the parenting. That, that's what I believe. Let me tell you why I think that. There's another phrase that says children are believers. And before I explain why I'm saying it's the character of the parents, I'll, I want to tell you what I think this means. There's two options for the meaning char- that their children are believers. Either one, it can be translated their, their kids are believers. They believe in Jesus. Option number two that this word can be translated, their kids are faithful. Some of your translations will say the children are faithful um, or dependable might be the word. Uh, Here's why I think, I'm going to give you two reasons why I think it doesn't mean the kids have to be believers. Even though that may be what you're saying clearly. That's not clearly what it's saying in the Greek. Here's why I'm saying that. Um, First of all, no parent can force their kids to place their trust in Jesus. Isn't that outside of our control at some point? You can, listen, you can parent your kids as good as you want, but in the end, they have to decide to follow Jesus for themselves, right? I think all the parents of older kids would agree that you can control an awful lot of things when they're three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. then 13 starts to happen and control feels like it starts to be gone a little bit, Right? Parents of teens, yes. Then 15, 16, and then good grief, 18, 20, 21. Do you have control over your kids at that point? Can you mandate that they follow Jesus at 21, 25, 28, 30? What's Paul saying here? Here's why I think that. The parallel passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, if if the standard is that the kids have to be followers of Jesus, I should see that in the parallel passage. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. He says this this way. It's the same phrase, idea he's trying to get across. He says this. He must manage his, ha- his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He didn't say the guy's kids have to be followers of Jesus. He says, listen, he's got to be able to lead and manage his home well. I believe that's what Paul is saying to Titus as well. The point is that this man is leading his kids in a way that they're not living wild and rebellious while they're in his house, that he's, he's literally shepherded them and dealing with them, dealing with their rebellion, dealing with their heart issues, dealing with their sin, dealing with their victories in a godly, dignified, loving, compassionate way. In other words, this, if a man can't manage his kids, there's no way he can, he's qualified to deal with the issues that pop up in a church. If he's not going to confront sin in his kid's life, what makes you think he's going to confront sin in the lives of the church? If, if he's going to be overbearing and crushing on his kids, what makes you think he's not going to be overbearing and crushing to the church? If he's going to be emotionally disconnected from his family, what makes you think he's going to be a good, loving, caring shepherd for you? Like, listen, that, that's the point. The point is that the character of this man is that he loves and leads his wife well and he parents and leads his kids well, not perfectly, but with consistent godly character. Listen, it doesn't get me off the, 
the hook if my kids go wild. That's not what I'm, I'm not saying that I get a free pass. It doesn't mean anything about my family matters. It means this. It means that as you're evaluating a man that's qualified to be a pastor, part of the conversation is his marriage. The other part of the conversation is his family. It's this long, consistent, how did you parent them when you were in your home? How are you engaging them now? Were you loving? Were you engaged? Were you consistent? Were you as strong as you needed to be? Or were you too soft? Were you too hard? Like, listen, I got to be honest, this this freaks me out. (laughs) As a dad with young kids, this freaks me out. But here's what I know. It is my responsibility, not my kids. So the conversation from a man who's supposed to be qualified is never, you better behave or you're going to cost me my job. That, no, that doesn't work, man. No, I better parent and I better lead and I better love like a man that's been deeply changed by Jesus or I'm going to cost me my job. Listen, church, that's the type of character that we need in pastors. And for too long, for too long, we've settled for less. We've settled for the image. We've settled for the appearance. We've settled for a million things. And I want to cry out as loud as possible, let's not settle for any less anymore ever again. I want all the churches in all the world to see this passage, burn it deep in their heart, and not tolerate any less. I want to see pastors that will give all the time and energy that's needed to shepherd and raise their kids well and not fall in love with ministry growing and exploding and sacrifice their family along the way. Uh, I want us to be surrounded by pastors that will pour into their marriage and get help when needed and be humble enough to do whatever it takes to make sure that their wife and their marriage is thriving and not sacrifice their marriage on the altar of success in ministry. Man, church, I I wanna be this pastor. I want Jesus to do this work in my life. I want us to have elders at this church that are qualified like this. That's the the goal. That's God's plan for leadership in the church. Now listen, I'm I'm asking this question. So how should I respond to that? Some of you are sitting here like, man, okay, that's great. Good luck with all your homework, Fayez, for the next couple years as a husband and dad. Well, here's the deal. I don't want you to ever compromise on godly character in yourself or in your leaders at the church. At the very beginning of this, I said, this list was not super amazing because seriously, do you think that God has a lower standard for men and women in the church? He thinks he says, you know what? It's, it's important for the pastor and his wife to have a good marriage, but y'all's marriage, they can be so-so. I'm okay with that. No, like, listen, this is not a rocket science. Listen, he's got to ha- be a good husband and a good dad. Like, okay, guess what? All of us are underneath that exact same standard, right? Like, come on guys. Like, Those who say, well, I don't want to be a pastor. It doesn't matter. No, it matters. Don't settle. Do not compromise on godly character in yourself or in the leadership at the church. Listen, it doesn't work to have pastors who have godly character and a whole bunch of dirtbags in the pews. 
right? Like that doesn't work. That, that's a, that's a, just a sham. Like there should be a work of Jesus in every single person that's sitting in these seats. Everyone that's a part of this family, we want Jesus to work. And you may be in a different part of that process, but come on, man, like this is for all of us. I'm also actually going to also ask this in response, not just not compromising a godly character, but would you pray for me and my family? God, like, it's really difficult to wade into this passage for me personally because I am fully aware of a whole lot of flaws that I personally have. And when I read this passage, the prayer that goes up from my heart is, God, make me this. Keep me this. Like, I, I want this. And I got to be honest, I want prayer for it. And how about I commit to pray for your marriages and families as well? Because it's not just that we want it for my family. I want it for yours because Jesus wants it for your family. Also, here's my questions. So, some of you, um, I'm talking about don't settle on godly character. And right now, the thing that's going on in your head is about your marriage, your parenting. And you're feeling like this guilt piled up at a massive level. If I said, so how's your parenting? How's your marriage? Is it godly? Are you parenting and doing married life with godly character, with love and compassion and wisdom? And some of you are sitting there going, I know what the last week, last month, last year looked like. Some of you are here saying, man, it feels like we're on the rocks right now. I'm not sure we're going to make it. Like, listen, I, I want to say this, and I want you to hear the gospel in this. In whatever areas you, you are currently failing in, run to Jesus. Listen, repentance is not difficult. Like, listen, he will forgive you and he will clean you and he will give you everything you need to be a better husband and father, wife and mother. That's, that's what he does. Listen, he can make us these types of spouses. He can make us these types of parents. The gospel can do that. And listen, let us as, as a church help you with that. Don't do it by yourself alone in the corner. Bring it to the light. Let us, we got people in this room that's got decades of marriage experience, good and bad. And listen, they would love to come alongside and be like, let me, I got good and bad experience. I can share it. Point you to Jesus. Pray for you. Come alongside and help. Listen, I've seen people do crazy things with this. I mean, crazy. There was this one guy, his marriage was on the rocks. He'd been having tons and tons of affairs and he repented and confessed it, was bring it all out to his spouse. And do you know what a guy in the church did? This guy had a job where he traveled a lot. Both guys had a job where they traveled a lot. Well, the one dude began at the church, started taking business trips with the guy. He joined the guy on his business trips so he'd have someone else with him to keep him from slipping back into those affairs. Listen, that guy didn't just quietly say, I'm done with the affairs and go on his own and go on his business trips all by himself. There was a dude in the church that locked arms with him and did business trips with him, stayed in the same hotel room with the man. Dude is like 30 years older than the guy. That's the church. 
that, that's, that's a church locking arms together, walking side by side to help you be the father and husband you're supposed to be. That's why we need each other. Because sin is brutal. Some of you, your guilt is not in your current marriage. You're wallowing guilt over past marriage or past parenting mistakes. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross for us, he didn't just clean us of a few of them. He cleaned us of all of them. I'm not asking you to pretend like the past didn't happen. I'm asking you to trust that Jesus really forgives you. Like really, like he smiles at you. He knows how bad your last marriage was. He knows the areas you messed up. But he knows where you've messed up with your kids. And just a newsflash, even if you never mess up with your kids, which we are, right? Let's just be honest. Even if you never mess with your kids, that doesn't mean they're going to turn out perfect. You're raising little sinners. <laughs> Sorry about that bad news. But I'm telling you, don't wallow in guilt over the past. Run to Jesus. Trust that he forgives you. And then, listen, can you pray for him to do a work in the heart of your kids that trumps the mistakes you made as a parent? He's big enough to do that. They answer for their own decisions. You answer for you, but you need to hear me. Like Jesus has enough grace to overcome all your failures as a parent. He can overcome all of it. He can literally grab your kid's heart no matter how bad you've messed up as a mom or dad. If he can bring Jesus back from the dead, dude, he's got your kids. Don't wallow in the guilt. Trust Jesus. Repent of it. But man, pray for him to overcome your mistakes as a parent. Some of us have a lot more to pray for. Um, I know I do. The, the other thing is this. Some of you hear me talk about all this. I keep saying the gospel, and you're saying, well, that's not how I've experienced church. I've experienced rules and law. I, w- I want all of you to hear the gospel before I wrap up. And I'm going to re- close on this. Listen. The good news of Jesus is that no matter what your past looks like, good or bad, we've all needed a Savior. And that Jesus died on the cross and he came back to life three days later. And I want you to know the essence of the gospel is that he will forgive us if we repent and ask him to forgive us. He'll clean us, he'll make us part of the family, and he'll give you power to live a brand new life. Man, listen. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus, if all you've done has been religious performance, if all you've done is showed up at church and pretended, or maybe you haven't even pretended, you just know you're deeply broken, you need a savior. He wants you to be part of the family. He invites you to join. Listen, I encourage you today, do that. Don't leave here today without talking to one of us pastors. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I'm gonna guide us in a time of response. And this, I know I've gone long. Just give me a few more minutes. I want to walk you through a moment where you just, um, you do business with God. And here's the question that I have for you. Did God, did God convict you of anything today? Listen, there was a call for you to repent or ask him to forgive you for lack of godly character or for failures as a parent for failures as a spouse, right there in your seat, would you just ask him to forgive you?
don't just ask him to forgive you. Would you ask him to empower you to live a life that's right before your kids and your spouse? Ask him to help you make it right. For some of you, uh, you've been wallowing in past guilt, whether it's parenting or marriage. Listen, if that's been you, would you just run to Jesus and just believe that he forgives you? Others of you, you've just, uh, man, you've spent a life performing and pretending and you've never really met the real Jesus. You've met religion, but you've never met Jesus. Listen, if that's you in your seat, I just want to encourage you right there. Would you just confess to him, say, God, I got to need you. I, I believe that you died on the cross and came back to life three days later. And I'm asking you to save me. And if that was you right there in your seat, I want you to know if you prayed and asked Jesus to save you, then he did. And at this moment, you're a son or a daughter. You're part of his family. And we would love to help you take next steps in a deeper relationship with him. And finally, right there in your seat, I'm going to ask all of you to do this one thing. Would you take a moment to praise God that he is so merciful and gracious that he would forgive us of our failures. Take a moment to praise him. He's strong enough. If he's strong enough to bring Jesus back from the dead, he's strong enough to save your kids and save your marriage. He, he can make that relationship amazing and deep and beautiful and whole. No matter what you've done, I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm saying he can do that. pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we, um, we're we all here. We, we know how hard marriage can be, how hard parenting can be, how hard it can be to have godly character. But God, it, that, it's hard because of our weaknesses. God, you're stronger than we are. And God, I pray that you would take our weaknesses and you would make yourself strong, that we would celebrate your work in our lives and our marriages and our parenting. God, for the singles that are out there that are struggling with singleness, God, I pray that you would show yourself strong to make them men and women of character who are pure and wholly committed to you. God, I'm praying you would make us a people that are literally flavored with the gospel in our marriages, in our parenting, in our character. God, make us those people. And I pray that as we leave here today, we would leave here challenged to live life like that, but I pray we would leave here really fully resting in what you've done for us. I pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.